Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to How Should I Be Positioned on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. On this podcast, we do like to catch up with the Chief Investment Office here at UBS, along with our third-party asset manager partners, for a discussion on macro topics that are moving markets and considerations when it comes to asset allocation. So joining me here on the line for the conversation today, glad to welcome back to the forum Jason Dreho, the Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, and excited to welcome Torsten Slock, the Chief Economist at Apollo Global Management. So Jason, Torsten, thank you both for spending some time with our listeners, our clients. Looking forward to hearing your insights. Welcome. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. So to get started, I know there is growing concerns about a recession with what seems like a majority of investors thinking a recession is likely to begin before the end of 2023. So I'm curious, Torsten, what do you think is the likelihood of a recession starting over that span? Uh, Perhaps put another way, how confident are you in a soft landing for the economy? So at this point, I still think that there is a low probability of a recession uh, the consensus uh, thinks that there's a 20% chance of a recession in the next 12 months. And I think that's a reasonable estimate given where we are because the economy is still quite hot and overheated. So it becomes a debate about will the Fed raise rates so quickly that they'll cool the economy down very significantly, very rapidly. And I still think at this point, that there is a better chance that they will achieve a soft landing. Thank you, Torsten. Uh, Jason, what about your thoughts there? Well, certainly for the next 12 months, I would agree with Torsten that I think the, the strong momentum in the, in the economy is should continue. The fundamentals on the household side are, are quite solid. Labor market is strong. So I think the chances of a recession in the next, you know, say, 12 months is, is you know, 20%. I think that's a reasonable estimate. I might even go a little bit lower than that. Or in some sort of external factor like, you know, the, the war in Ukraine escalated and something like that. I think the question is more of like, what do we do kind of beyond that? You know, and you know, for the Fed getting more aggressive, where is the risk you know, of a recession, say, by the end of 2023? I think that's where the, the probabilities, my read, you know, is kind of is, is definitely kind of escalates quite a bit then. And of course, then you're hearing this and seeing the same thing. But I think on relative to that, I think we're a little more comfortable that even as the Fed tightens, you know, whether it's 23, 24, we still don't think a recession is likely. Um, so I'm curious just if we kind of you know, extrapolate the horizon towards like for 24 months or into 2024, uh, how does that sort of your outlook change over that horizon? Yeah, so I do think that this is a very important discussion for investors because there is uh, an emerging small group of observers who are saying that we could have a hard landing uh, and that could potentially come as soon as in 2022. Uh, but the reason why I still think that this is just too early is that there's a number of themes in markets that continue to play out. Most importantly, we still have an inflation problem, and we still need to figure out how the Fed is going to deal with that inflation problem and how long time it's going to take before inflation begins to come down. And that has, of course, a wide range of consequences for investors, in particular here and now, that if the immediate problem is that inflation in the latest reading at 8.5% is much higher than the Fed target of 2%, then we do need to think about the very near term in terms of asset allocation instead being driven by inflation being substantially above the target. And associated, of course, with too high inflation, we also had two responses from the Federal Reserve. The first response is that short rates are going up. Uh, the Fed funds rate, obviously, has already been moved higher uh, in the March meeting. 
it will also be moved higher in the May meeting. Uh, and if you look ahead in the Fed fund futures and also OIS curves, the market is now pricing more than 10 rate hikes for the rest of this year. That's, of course, a very substantial amount of rate hikes. So one thing that we as investors should always keep in mind is that when the risk-free rate goes up, and the Fed funds rate is really the risk-free rate, that does have significant consequences for asset allocation. So another way of saying that is that not only are short rates going up, they're also turning from QE, meaning quantitative easing or asset purchases, to quantitative tightening, meaning running down the balance sheet. And those two things combined, higher short rates and also running down the balance sheet, is in essence an attempt to try to tighten financial conditions, to try to have a significant impact on uh, the economy in the sense that's trying to cool the economy down to get inflation under control. So with that backdrop, I think that before we open up the recession discussion, we should, as asset allocators, instead have a discussion about what are the consequences of the environment that we are in now, which is likely to continue at least at least for the next several months and most likely also for the rest of this year. So, of course, that actually segues into the, you know, the inflation topic. You know, the March CPI print was 8.5%. A lot of people think that was the probably the peak in this cycle. But the question is, well, what does the other side of the mountain look like? You know, so how fast does it moderate, you know, and does it moderate to like a plateau? You know, what is your thinking in terms of, you know, the trend for, you know, say the rest of this year? Where do we end up, you know, um, you know, let's say by the end of 2023, I think the Fed is, you know, calling for inflation to be back below 3% by then, at least it's measures of inflation like core PCE. So I guess what is your thoughts and what are the kind of the key drivers that you think either would keep inflation elevated or why you think maybe it's going to be less than consensus, which I think is around 5.5% by, by year end? Yeah, exactly. And that's very important, Jason, because if you think about it, if the Fed has an inflation target of 2%, and the consensus, and this is the consensus view, is now that inflation by the end of this year will not be anywhere near 2%. It will still be around 5.5% on PCE inflation. So with that backdrop, that, of course, leaves us with inflation substantially above the Fed's target. So we need to think as investors about that and then think about what are the consequences if inflation is allowed to run so hot and so much above the Fed's target. And the answer to that question is that, yes, it will still be the case that inflation is coming down. But the real fear uh, at the Fed and what several FOMC members have spoken about in recent weeks is that if inflation expectations become unanchored, in particular, we are seeing five-year, five-year break-evens, meaning what the, the market price that inflation will be in five years' time for the following five years, that measure of break-even inflation should not be impacted by the Ukraine situation, by energy prices, but that should purely be a measure of does the market believe that the Fed has inflation under control? And that measure has been going up. And as that continues to grind higher, that's telling us that the market is beginning to question whether the Fed will be able to get inflation down to 2%, even for the period that is five years out in the future, for the following five years. And that's a real risk for the Fed, namely that inflation expectations become unanchored, not only in market-based inflation expectations, but also in survey-based inflation expectations, meaning when you ask the man and the woman on the street, and they, at the moment, in the survey-based inflation expectations, they show that the average household expects inflation over the next 12 months to be 8%, which is also critical for the Fed, because that begins to then, again, raise the question whether the Fed actually has inflation under control, not only 
of course, here for the next few months, but even on a 12-month horizon. So the conclusion for the Fed must be, and this is also how they've been communicating, that they want to get inflation down immediately. And this is not like 2015, 16. In fact, it's actually really difficult to compare with previous Fed rate hike cycles and how equities and credit and FX traded at the time. Because in most previous rate hike cycles in the past uh, three, four decades, you did not see inflation anywhere near the levels we are at today at 8.5%. And you did not see inflation expectations go up the way that they're doing today. So in summary, Jason, the answer to your question is that um, the Fed is quite worried that there is a risk that inflation expectations become unanchored and the U.S. could turn into and get some of the problems that we have in emerging markets such as uh, Turkey, Argentina, South Africa, where inflation is a more permanent problem. Because once you get into that situation, then that, of course, begins to open up all kinds of downside risks to growth and consumption and consumer behavior and capex spending behavior. So that's why many FOMC members keep on mentioning Paul Volcker and the late 1970s and early 1980s in an attempt to try to say we need to get inflation under control, even if this comes at the cost of a recession. So again, I do not expect a recession, but it's a very important debate that inflation still is elevated. So to your point, it needs to come down, but we also need to see inflation expectations come down. And while we wait for that to happen, it will be a very volatile environment. We will have significant uh, issues with uh, discussions about where are we going in terms of rates, where are we going in terms of inflation, and therefore also as a result, where are we going in terms of margins on the S&P 500, where are we going in terms of spreads on the IG and high yield and also loans. Uh, Jason, sticking with the topic of inflation for a few more moments, uh, curious to hear your thoughts as to whether we might have hit peak in this current cycle, or uh, put another way, might there be further runway ahead of us? Well, I think we've hit peak, and you know some of that is just kind of the mathematics when we think about what drove inflation up in March versus February. You know, higher gasoline prices were a key driver, and we know just gas prices in general and, and across the country in April were, will be lower than they are in March. So that almost mathematically kind of helps. I think you know the more question, the question is like, where do we kind of go from here? You know, I, you know, consensus around five and a half percent by year end. I think you know we've leaned towards probably taking the under of that, meaning it'll be a little bit below. When you still look at the different drivers of inflation, there's aspects that are still being impacted by the you know the pandemic of you know demand distortions, a huge demand for goods, you know supply side issues. Those things bit by bit are kind of normalizing, and then as those normalize, you know the prices of the goods that went up, they should even kind of come down. That kind of rate operates inflation lower. So if you're thinking about the direction of travel, it's it's kind of the lower side to, to us, at least relative to five and a half percent. I think the key part, and this is the harder part to kind of answer, is. You know, ultimately, once that sort of normalizes, you still have wage growth of like five, five and a half percent, maybe even higher because it's, you know, that the, the labor market is so tight. Ultimately, that's almost sort of puts a cap on how low inflation can go. And the Fed would worry about a, like a wage price spiral, at least self-fulfilling, which makes it really hard for inflation to come down. So I think the first leg of inflation dropping to some reasonable level is, I think that's a fairly safe bet to happen, whether it's by the end of this year or at some point next year. I think the question then becomes like, well, what do we, what level do we kind of sort of stabilize that? And that, that's kind of hinged probably more on the, you know, the labor market dynamic, which, you know, it might be stuck at like three to 4% if wage growth stays where it is, given the tightness of, of the labor market, which then kind of going back to you, Torsten, you know, we talked about the Fed and what they're willing to tolerate and, you know, they want to get inflation expectations down, which I think they've risen, but not to like a level where they've become unanchored. 
but the Fed, you know, it's two percent is their target, right? About price stability. That's the official number. Do you think if inflation comes down to like three, three and a half percent and stays steady, that that would be enough for them to sort of, you know, 12 months from now sort of declare victory? We can kind of pause on, on rate hikes. We don't want to kind of go too far now. Since you risk tipping the economy to recession, like, where, where do you, how do you, you know, if you put them here, you know, try and think through like, what is Alan Greenspan and the FOMC thinking right now? What would be their sort of ideal scenario? And what do you think, Pat, they would actually be willing to take? Yeah, this is a really important question. And as, as you're also mentioning, the labor market and wages will be a really important backdrop for that decision. And another important backdrop for that decision will be inflation expectations, including in break-evens, to what degree they have started also to come down or whether inflation expectations continue to move higher. One thing, exactly as you mentioned, Jason, that I exactly also think is very important is that I think that the equity market is at the moment Things are a little bit more wobbly, but it's still the case that uh, it's certainly clear that implied vol in rates is much, much higher than what implied vol is in equities. In rates markets, people are very worried about all the inflation that is here and all the uncertainty about where inflation is going. Whereas in equity markets, VIX is still just hovering around 20. So it seems like equity investors basically are saying, well, we think that inflation is a problem maybe in the very short term, but uh, it will all come down, everything will be fine, and there's really not much to worry about. I think the key backdrop for this is that in the labor market, we are seeing quite an elevated risk also of a wage price spiral in the sense that uh, a lot of workers are shifting jobs at the moment. Uh, and that's, of course, because they are faced with higher prices for food, higher prices for gas, higher prices for cars, higher prices for housing, mortgages, rents. You have seen across the board that things have just become more expensive. And as a result, in the labor market, we're also seeing wages begin to go higher, partly also because people are switching jobs. So that, of course, also begins then to raise some questions about margins. Because remember, labor makes up roughly two-thirds of costs for the average corporate. And if labor costs continue to move higher, that means that you also should begin to have some negative effects on margins. And if margins for corporates go up because wage costs are going up, Energy costs are going up, distribution and logistics costs, meaning supply chain costs are going up. Then um, the outlook for earnings for the S&P 500 becomes quite importantly driven by these cost pressures that we're seeing at the moment. That's why the outlook for the equity market at the moment should be importantly uh, viewed from the perspective of costs continuously moving higher at the moment. And in particular, of course, driven by inflation moving higher. So on, on the equity market, here there's a view that you know the Fed wants to tighten financial conditions. So it's not just raise interest rates, but they want financial conditions to tighten, which would actually mean like stock prices coming down, credit spreads widening, because that's the only way you can really slow the economy and bring being able to bring supply and demand, you know, sort of back into balance. Certainly in the labor market, which is a little strange. Like you know, there, I've always kind of thought of the, the stock market as being sort of an independent assessment of the direction of the economy. Now we seem to be in this environment where the Fed is almost by this argument, intentionally wants equity prices to go lower by you know, how much. They would never sort of admit it, but like they would like that because that's necessary to slow the economy. Do you kind of agree with that? Like, do you think the Fed would be like, great, you know, if, if the S&P is down another 15%, that's kind of a key part to kind of slow the economy, um, and we're willing to make that trade-off. So the Fed put that has been around for many years, like that's far out of the money, so to speak, at this point in time. Do you think that that's how you would think about the, the dynamic between the Fed and the equity markets right now? Yeah, I do think that the Fed's goal is to, to tighten financial conditions. The Fed would like to slow demand down 
or uh, to put it more directly, the Fed would like to see demand destruction. Because the problem is that with COVID, we saw supply in the economy come down. And supply here means, of course, everything that comes through supply chains, even labor supply is a lot lower uh, than where it was pre-COVID. So across the board in consumer services and goods, we have just seen supply shrink in the economy, partly because of the pandemic, but also for a number of other reasons. But the conclusion is that supply is just lower than where it was before. And in that environment, when now we are coming out of COVID, and demand is now rising faster than uh, what it normally does, uh, meaning before the pandemic, that all gives this co- combination or this cocktail of very strong demand and relatively uh, subdued supply. And with that backdrop, there is simply an imbalance between demand and supply in the economy in so many different markets, which is exactly creating this a very significant inflationary pressure that we're seeing at the moment. And with that backdrop, really the only tool the Fed has is to try to tighten financial conditions. And exactly to your point, one way of doing that is for the stock market to go lower. I don't think that they would say that uh, they would like the stock market to go lower. The the way that FOMC members always talk about uh, these things is to talk about uh, financial conditions more broadly. So some combination of seeing wider credit spreads, uh, modestly lower equities, and definitely higher front-end rates and higher long rates uh, is the most important way for them to achieve the goal of trying to get demand lower so that we have less imbalance between demand and supply and therefore also less upward inflationary pressure. So maybe we can pivot a bit away from macro, spend a few moments here on asset allocation and thinking big picture. Uh, Torsten, curious to hear from your vantage point how investors might approach portfolio construction different than they have in the past decade or two. Uh, Being mindful of the new macro regime of higher inflation that you've been discussing with Jason. Yeah, so the three themes that we have talked about here, the three of us, uh, inflation is high. Rates are going up, and there's a lot of volatility. So what are the investing consequences, in particular for alternatives, on the back of these three themes? Well, if inflation is high, uh, the textbook would tell you, and that's also the uh, asset allocation recommendation that I have at the moment, that you should be investing in the long-term cash flows with long uh, uh, perspective uh, as an investor. Uh, that doesn't mean that long uh, uh, cash flows such as real estate, infrastructure, ESG, impact funds, that doesn't mean that these types of investments are not impacted by inflation or rates going up or what's going on in financial markets, but it's at least much less impacted and much less vulnerable relative to just, for example, being in treasuries or in passive investment-grade credit or passive high-yield Uh, So the first observation is, and the first recommendation is that with high inflation, it's a good idea to buy uh, long cash flows and long-term assets, such as, again, real estate, even a basket of commercial real estate and infrastructure, uh, which generally has been a really good hedge against inflation. The second theme in markets, of course, rates going up. Uh, That, of course, argues for buying floating rate products. That means not buying passive investment grade or passive high yield, but buying either loans or buying high grade alpha, uh, buying funds that benefit from rates moving higher. We still have a potentially for a few more quarters and a potentially for longer, if you look at the Fed's forecast, an environment where rates will be grinding higher. And in that environment, you want to be 
in floating rate product that generally tends to do well, and in particular up in quality uh, such as uh, high grade uh, alpha uh, that generally tends to perform well. Uh, of course, when rates are going up. And third and finally, when there's more volatility because of this uncertainty about inflation and because of uh, the general uncertainty about the outlook, uh, including, of course, also at the moment geopolitical uncertainty, that, of course, also argues for uh, being more careful with just passive investments in S&P 500 or passive investments, say, in the investment-grade credit index. You have to be much more active uh, in both equities and in credit and you have to pick managers that are active simply because entry price now matters. A lot of things have become very cheap over the last uh, six, nine months. Even some parts of tech and growth have become much, much cheaper. And there are a lot of opportunities, in particular, of course, for private equity, but also private credit and across the board for credit selectors and stock pickers for picking the right uh, assets uh, when you have such a volatile environment as we're having at the moment. So in summary... I would base asset allocation recommendations on the three themes of inflation being high and rates going up and volatility staying here for most likely at least until the end of this year. Hey, Torsten, a follow-up question kind of ties into your, the first two points on inflation staying high and rates going up. When you think about equities and particularly like sort of styles or sectors or, or regions, does that sort of tilt you one way or another on this kind of the value versus growth debate that's been taking place? You know, growth, great pre-pandemic because in a world of low growth, you want to buy secular growth stocks. In a world, though, where rates could be going higher, inflation is higher, maybe not so good for growth stocks, but could be better for value. So do you have a kind of a view of like how that's influencing your, if at all, your kind of allocation decisions? Yeah, absolutely, because I think exactly as you're highlighting also, I think that a very important backdrop here for why growth and tech has done so well is that rates were so low. And now if there is an inflation problem and the Fed is very, very clearly communicating that they want to tighten financial conditions, they want rates to be higher, with that backdrop, it is not a surprise that tech in particular, but growth more generally, is vulnerable. Because growth, I think of tech as the, as the best example, tech is a very long duration asset that is very sensitive to what the discount rate is doing and the discount rate being either the Fed funds rate or the five-year rate or 10-year rate depending on uh, how you do your model and if the level of interest rates continues to grind higher uh, as it's done now then it should be expected that growth will be underperforming so to your question uh, yes absolutely value should be outperforming uh, and also most importantly with that backdrop with the other themes that we've been talking about Active asset management and active credit selection and active stock picking becomes very, very important uh, so that you're not vulnerable to the continued sell-off in tech and in growth uh, as rates continue to move higher. So I know we just have a few minutes left remaining for our time together today. And Torsten, Jason, thank you for covering all of the ground that you have thus far with our clients, our listeners. Uh, before we close out, just in the way of final thoughts and takeaways, Jason, maybe what we can do is allow our guest, Torsten Slock, with the final word. So, Jason, I'll go to you first if you have any final thoughts or takeaways you would like to leave us with today. Well, I'd sort of echo some of Torsten's comments just regarding asset allocation. It's clear that we've entered some sort of different regime you know, coming out of the pandemic than what existed you know, prior to the pandemic. I think that the most confidence we can have is that inflation is likely to be persistently higher, at least by some amount, than it was pre-pandemic, and therefore rates could actually set new highs versus where they were you know, prior to the pandemic. If that's the case, then some of the rules and the playbook that worked for investing 
you know, five years ago are probably not the playbook that would work, you know, best in this environment. So I think we would agree that certainly on a medium to longer term view, value stocks start to look more attractive in that environment. Real assets that's, uh, you know, that have you know, kind of cash flows that can be inflation adjusted. So whether that's in real estate, as an example, infrastructure, but also commodities, because commodity prices are probably one of the drivers of, of sustained inflation. So I think that's an environment of things that sort of, you know, people maybe didn't look for five years ago. I think that's likely to be the, the you know, some of the things you need to do now. The other thing, though, is there's a lot of uncertainty of the paths we can take from here. I mean, we certainly have our, our view. I think it's reasonably closely aligned with what Torsten, you know, outlined for, for their view. But we also don't know just whether inflation will come down as much as we think because of the supply chain issues. We don't know if the Fed or how far they can tighten or how far they will tighten and whether, you know, we will actually get it up a recession or not. So you almost have to be prepared with a lot of diversification in your portfolio for different scenarios playing out. Because aside from a different macro regime from five years ago, that macro regime was very predictable. It was kind of low inflation, low growth, low rates low volatility. So you just did one thing and that actually worked out well. Now you have to almost be kind of you know, prepared for different scenarios because the world could look even different, you know, another 12 to 18 months from now. So that would be sort of my bottom line is different regime, but prepare for sort of different paths we could take from here. Just to respond to that, and I think that makes complete sense. I think exactly to your point, I think the regime has changed. And I think that's the, perhaps the most important takeaway. Essentially, since 2008 and the financial crisis, really almost all the way up until uh, COVID came along. And for investors, it was really a game of hunting yield just by the passive S&P 500, just by the passive IG index or the passive high yield index. And that generally couldn't go that wrong. You could probably do better in more or different strategies, more active strategies as, as usual. Uh, but the environment now, is really one where essentially, if you really lean back and think about what uh, Jay Powell and the FOMC is telling us at the moment, they have gone from telling everyone all the way back from Bernanke and Yellen also, say they used to say, you should just go and hunt yields, just go out the risk spectrum. And now if you really think about what they're saying today, they're actually saying you should no longer just hunt yields. You need to do your homework as an investor. You need to take these themes and these topics that we have talked about here in the last half hour and make sure that you are invested in those areas that are likely to give a higher return because just being passively invested in some index in either equities or in, say, again, in credit is at risk of making you much more vulnerable when you have a high inflation environment and a rising rate environment. Well, Torsten, Jason, you've both been very generous with your time. Thank you both very much for joining us here on How Should I Be Positioned for sharing your insights, thoughts on a range of macro topics, uh, guidance as well when it comes to asset allocation. Of course, there's a lot here we can follow up on. So perhaps looking forward to having a follow-up conversation with you both a bit down the pike. Uh, Though, thank you again for your time and participation today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Dan. And thanks, Torsten, for joining us today. My pleasure. And again, today we've been joined by Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Torsten Slock, Chief Economist at Apollo Global Management. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us.
UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.